Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need your help as we discuss and to be illuminated to the significance of its truth. May those who are in Christ be strengthened. May those who are without Christ be saved. In his name we pray. Amen. Today we discover that we're near the end of Christ's Galilean ministry. Having fed the 5,000, both Jesus and his disciples are now back on the northwest shores of the Sea of Galilee, near Jesus' hometown. Those who have been fed and healed on the eastern shores of the sea, instead of going home, have found their way back again to the other side of the lake to search for Jesus' followers. As the sun rose, they discovered Jesus was also there. They marveled at this and inquired how in the world he could have been with his disciples on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, understanding that he had sent his men off in the boat alone just the evening before. They also noted the morning traffic, as Pastor Mike just read, on the western shore, the boat traffic. There was no way to calculate Christ's presence on the western shore. All except Christ's disciples are left to assume some supernatural event must have occurred, providing Jesus' presence on that side of the lake. As we've already discussed, Jesus' signs are performed either before or after necessary discourses. We come today to a chief discourse. It follows both the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, which really included four miracles in one that we discovered last week. Both these signs include two understandings that link the miracles with the discourse that was just read. The feeding of the 5,000 included the use of five loaves and two fish. Jesus provides bread, often in these times a, a blanket term used to demonstrate the caring of the whole of someone's needs by the Lord. He shows himself to be such a provider for the people they seek to forcibly make him their king. And second, as the disciples struggle for survival on the tumultuous waters of Galilee, Jesus appears and commands them to not be afraid because he is the I am. It would be appropriate to combine these two elements of these signs and see their significance in relationship to the discourse in the passage before us today. You see, Jesus proclaims in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Jesus exclusively proclaims his self-existent nature while at the same time speaking forth that he is sufficient food for their souls for all of eternity. This bread of life discourse is just one sermon given in the synagogue in Capernaum, as verse 59 tells us. We've already noted that Jesus 
has reached the zenith of his ministry. He has just fed and healed thousands, and now these have followed him again to experience even more of the same. Jesus has quite an audience before him. He finds himself at a juncture where he could again exponentially cause his influence to grow even more viral. And though he's at the pinnacle of his influence, he's at even a more critical juncture of discerning whether he will be one who has come to do the will of his Father or merely satisfy the demands of men. The sermon before us reveals Jesus compassionately but clearly pursuing the doing of the will of his Father. The Bread of Life sermon setting can be better understood maybe by dividing the sermon into three points i i'm 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 confident that that three points in a sermon is of divine origin because this is jesus's sermon and it seems to have three sections i'm glad you're with me this morning this is actually my outline of jesus's sermon and it includes all the verses that were read I did note in Ben's gracious comments before the choir saying that he assumed that it was going to take several more weeks to get through <laughs> chapter 6. And, 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 and typically that's true. That's true. We're going to try to accomplish this whole sermon in one sermon. Uh, I will tell you that uh, I was, as I was studying through the text, it would be very easy for me to preach five to six sermons on each one of these three points. Um, we could be here till Christmas on John 6, really. Uh, but we're going to try to do whatever we can to, again, cover one sermon in, in one sermon. Uh, so uh, hang on uh, as, we, as we continue. Uh, at, 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 the, at, the, at the least, we may finish next week. We'll see how things go. I think it's evident in the verses that have been read that there was uh, very clear confusion confusion of unbelief. That would really be uh, the first point that I would like to uh, describe this morning. Uh, It is really hard to preach on another man's sermon. (laughs) I think we'll find this this morning to probably be more of a Bible study than a time of preaching. Jesus just preached to us. (laughs) Now we will teach through what he preached and the first thing that we'll try to explain is the confusion of unbelief the second part of our bible study this morning will be the clarity that jesus brings to the confusion the clarity that jesus brings to the confusion and then finally either this week or next we're going to look at a compelling invitation the confusion of unbelief the clarity that jesus brings to the confusion, and then a compelling invitation from the lips of our Savior. What about this confusion? Well, this confusion of unbelief can really be divided up among three words. There's questioning, there's grumbling, and then there's arguing or debating. Questioning, grumbling, arguing, and debating. As a matter of fact, each time the gospel of John describes unbelief, it seems to, their discontent seems to crescendo along with 
Christ's words that are offered. The first time we see them speak is in verses 28 to 33 that were read. Jesus has just rebuked them before the formal commencing of this sermon by telling them that they're following him for improper motive. And they're looking again for bread that'll fill their stomachs but not satisfy their souls. And so they start to rifle at him a series of questions. We read those questions already. And it is mindful to know that religious unbelief, though often sincere, is sincerely misguided. We know from the passage that they followed to find Jesus on the western shore, seeking to make him their king and to receive more basic needs from him. And that's what God does, right? He heals and he provides needs. Unbelief at this point had failed to see, though, who Jesus was. To them, Jesus was God sent. He was that prophet from God, remember? He was glorious in his humanity without a thread of divinity to his existence, though. Jesus begins to direct their eyes and hearts heavenward, again by employing them to seek bread from heaven and not just bread for breakfast. He seeks for them to properly identify himself as the one upon whom God has set his seal, one who has been commissioned with the authority to forgive sins, grant eternal life, and reconcile mankind back to God through the sacrifice of himself. Yet man still seeks bread that is for the stomach that only leads to death. These religious ones have no problem running with the crowd that wants virtuous needs fulfilled but sees no need for their own forgiveness through Jesus. They seek and even ask Jesus in the text that we've read, what must we do to work the works of God? And isn't that the question of all religion that's never satisfied with Jesus? What must we do? How much more can we work? What good things can we perform and Jesus replies, they have but one simple thing to do, and that's believe. And yet they keep the questions coming. What sign will you do next, Lord, they ask. What work do you perform, we've read. And they get even more specific. They ask for Jesus, literally in the context, to repeat the miracle of manna from heaven God's people experienced in their Old Testament wanderings in the wilderness. Certainly, they've seen bread come endlessly from the hand of Jesus just the day before. But if he could get bread to fall from heaven, then maybe they'll just believe. That would be the sign of all signs. Just one more, Lord. Can you 
perform the miracle that they're assigning to Moses. Let the manna fall from the clouds and we'll believe. Just at this point, we need to remember again that Jesus knows their hearts. He's fully aware that unbelief is just going to keep asking questions and keep the expectations coming. And folks, that's just what unbelief does, regardless of its form or its origin. Jesus is fully aware that unbelief will always have an expectation of God with little to no expectation from self to embrace the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for salvation. So Jesus dives into the beginning of his bread of life sermon with the words, truly, truly. Do you remember reading those? Verse 32, it's the beginning of the sermon. I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Everyone, all activity of healing and, and feeding completely stops. And for the next few minutes, the Lord Jesus Christ has the intention of all those in the synagogue, and probably even those pressing their ears to the walls of the synagogue seeking to hear what he has to say. Well, they go from questioning to grumbling. After the first part of Jesus' bread of life sermon, we find them in verse 41 and 42 grumbling. Now that word grumbling, or in Pastor Mike's translation as you read, complaining, that sounds like a familiar word from the Israelites' wilderness wandering in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Right? They're murmuring. Okay. Now, just for five seconds, I want you all to, just in a very low voice, say the word murmur together. All right? Ready? Go. Keep going. All right. That's what's happening in the synagogue. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? They're having a hard time with Jesus' exclusive statement that he comes from heaven. They know he's stating that he's God. And Jesus does a repetitive deep dive, continuing to skillfully unpack who he is and what he's come to do. And his words hardened hearts even more to the point of open debate in the synagogue and We'll find in our next little section in describing unbelief, the volume's turned up. You see, Jesus' skillful use of language, metonymy, and metaphor have brought them face to face in their minds with being asked to do something that is unthinkable as humans and unlawful as faithful Jews. Eat flesh and drink blood? They weren't cannibals, and the law of Moses forbade them from drinking blood of any kind. 
murmuring and complaining over these extreme things remains at a fever pitch. And we find them in verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Questioning, endless questioning. The religious, unbelieving mind is never satisfied. They want question after question, answer after answer, need after need, miracle after miracle performed, never finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. They will always complain about why they can't add to him or take away from him because he's just certainly merely human. His father's just Joseph. His mother Mary, and don't we know them? And as Jesus gets more specific about what it means to appropriate himself to their hearts, using very graphic terminology, they go from questioning to murmuring to debating and arguing. And it's no longer a soft, dull murmur. It's now shouting and screaming at one another as Jesus listens. Well, I think that's enough explanation this morning, an exploration of the unbelieving heart. It just doesn't matter what they see or hear from Jesus. Jesus and his faithful band is outnumbered, and the true disciples even wane in their confidence at this point. We find out later. So let's consider Jesus' words of clarity now on the whole matter. In his mercy, he seeks to clear the matter of his person and his purpose and his plan before man in love. So the clarity that Jesus brings to the confusion, no less than nine statements repeat themselves in a very tightly packed sermon. They say repetition, repetition aids learning, and that's certainly the case here for us. And we should note that the use of repetition here by Jesus in these statements is an act of his mercy. Certainly he's done so much already to demonstrate that he is the Son of God. Certainly Jesus has proven he's worthy to have individuals faith, place their faith in him as Lord and Savior. We've already been told in the earliest of the seven signs of John that Jesus performed the miracle already knowing what was in the people's hearts. Knowing they wouldn't respond. Hang on with me here, please. But he sacrificed and did the will of his Father regardless of their unbelief. Is there not something here for each of us to learn of our Jesus? Jesus knew nothing of contingency obedience. He owned nothing 
of pragmatic reciprocity obedience. John has taught or will teach in chapter 15 and later in 2 John verse 6 that love is just simply doing the will of the Father. We need not wait for others to obey for us to obey. Think of how much bread and fish and oxygen God's resources were used to minister to men. And Jesus knew they wouldn't believe and he utilized the resources anyway. Can you see why James later said, if you see your brothers and sisters have need and it's within your power to meet those needs and you don't, you're worse than an infidel. God's people never wait for others to obey so they will obey. You just obey. Whether no one comes behind you or not, you just obey. That's the model of Christ's obedience. Just do it. Honor the will of your Father without seeking to be merely pleasing to men who can never be satisfied and apparently never taught. Jesus gave and gave and gave of himself, knowing his approval rating among men would remain at an all-time low. And to us who believe, has he not richly lavished upon every one of us good spiritual and practical blessings, more than can be numbered? And does he not continue to give in both ways? as we move forward we want to unpack Jesus' clarity here with a few words and by the way none of us would call Jesus a poor steward of God's resources would we? I mean spending all that time all that money, all that oxygen for what? no return what kind of an investment is that? It's called an obedience investment. Well, the clarity of Christ can be explained to us among a few words again. First of all, he seeks to be clear with the confusion of unbelief by describing his provision of himself his provision and then secondly he'll be even more clear by laying out for them his plan to grant them that provision and then he's going to be very clear laser clear crystal clear by revealing the purpose for that 
provision and that plan. So let's begin to unpack here the way Jesus sought to be clear or to clear up the confusion of unbelief. And folks, really, all nine or so of these repeated phrases in this section of Scripture have been combined and categorized underneath these three words of clarification. When you read a a sermon narrative like this, just like you would read a miracle narrative in the gospel genre, you don't unpack it like you would an epistle. The hermeneutics are the same, but the application of those hermeneutics and the extraction of the outline are different. You want to look for phrases here, and and you probably saw them as Pastor Mike read them earlier. Multiple phrases utilized multiple times, and then you take those phrases and you you pray over those and you see what kind of clarity is is Jesus really trying to to give to, to take the clouds of confusion away from unbelief in his mercy. Doing again what he didn't have to do, but he did it anyway. Some of these multiple used phrases are here to give us an understanding of his provision. Again, his provision is himself. I am the bread of life. This is one of seven I am statements in the book to come. We're going to learn that Jesus is the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and I am the true vine. And he says here in verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. That statement is repeated in various forms throughout the rest of the chapter. Verse 27, 32, 33, 35, 41, 48, 50, 51, 55, twice, and verse 58. Excuse me, 55, he says, I am the true food, and in verse 58, he proclaims two more times that he's God's food. God's divine food. Ego Amy is the Greek term taken from, you know, Exodus chapter 3, the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, Jehovah. The God who is the self-existent, eternal, promise-keeping God of eternity. I am your provision for your soul. I am the eternal answer to your short-lived consequences to your sin. And this provision came from somewhere. It came down from heaven. Verses 32 and 33 tell us. Verse 35, Jesus proclaims again, for I have come down from heaven. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42, I have come down from heaven. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven. And verse 51, 
This is living bread. I am living bread that has come down out of heaven. And if you eat me, verse 34, this provision has a guarantee. You'll never go hungry again. There's no longer a core emptiness that will exist in your soul when you have Jesus. He fills that emptiness and satisfies the soul with his person. Continues to clarify by explaining God's plan to bring this provision to man. Any of you that have hungry mouths in your home know that those mouths need bread. Right? Lots of it. One of my favorite things to do when I travel to different cities or have the opportunity to travel for different, to different countries, I like to explore how they make bread. It's a fascinating, fascinating experiment. Uh, my kids refuse to have a family meal on a holiday without a specific role. We've tested and tried lots of roles, and this one particular role um, they just must have for any formal dinner. And I, 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 I'm okay with it. It's good. I, I really appreciate their selection. As a matter of fact, growing up, uh, we had a whole corner of our kitchen uh, stacked with um, English muffins, um, various kinds of breads, you say you spoiled your kids. Hey, look, you got to eat, you got to eat, right? So each kid liked their own kind of bread, so they got their own loaf, right? If one wanted seven grain, they got seven grain. If one wanted four, they got four. If one wanted whole wheat, just with a little whatever in it, they got it. It's all right. And, and, and in addition to that, there was other kinds of carbs, so we just called that corner the carb corner, right? Um, now that kid, my kids are mostly gone, uh, I'm glad the carb corner has a little less volume uh, to it for my own waistline sake because I'm a, I'm a bread, uh, absolute bread lover. <laughs> Jesus declares that he is the divine gift of spiritual bread from the Father and this gift, all right, this gift of bread, this offer has a plan. Verse 32, my father who gives this true bread. Verse 33, this bread is intended to give life to the world. And this explains the scope of God's love for those he came to die for. Jesus has seen the unbelief and the rejection of his own in the earlier parts of the book of John. And, and now we're receiving rejection from the Gentiles as we near the end of his Galilean ministry. But knowing they will reject his offer of eternal life, we find him offering himself as the food which endures unto eternal life. Verse 27. He preaches in verse 40 that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. This is the plan. He states the same in verse 47. And, and in verse 50, Jesus states that if anyone eats of the bread that he is, they will not 
die. Verse 51, Jesus says, He is the life of the world in His flesh. And in verse 57, Jesus says, Those who believe will live because of Him. And not only live, but verse 58 tells us they will live forever. And even Peter confidently proclaims in verse 68, as Ben said earlier, Lord, you only have the words of what kind of life? Eternal life. And friends, isn't this the reinforcement of John's purpose for writing? For John wrote that people might see the signs, the miracles, and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing they might have life through his name. The Lord Jesus clarifies with purpose as well. What's his purpose? Verse 38, verse 39, verse 40, verse 57. He must do the will of his Father. He has no other recourse but to obey. In verse 29, Jesus proclaims that he was come to do the work of God. Clearly, Jesus is compelled to obey his divine marching orders. Clearly, there's something the Father has given him to do, and he's determined to accomplish that will. And this offer of life would be offered to all and granted to those who have been given to Jesus by the Father. Jesus boldly preaches in verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly never cast out. He clarifies in verse 39 that all that, that of all that he has been given, he would lose nothing. The confidence from which Jesus speaks is gifted to him by the Father, for Jesus preaches it is the Father who divinely influences and draws souls to the Son. Yes, it is the will of the Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes would have eternal life, verse 40. Flip over with me to John chapter 17. We'll be there in a few weeks. Five times in the first nine verses of Jesus' high priestly prayer, he reminds us of this reality that we've just discussed. Verse 1, as Jesus begins to speak, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to whom all you have given him he may give eternal life. This is the eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. 
and they received them and truly understood that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. This is the purpose of the whole incarnation, my friends. All of this granting of eternal life is the will of the Father. And we note here that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him, in verse 44. We can also learn that anyone that is to be granted eternal life is not only drawn of God, he's also taught of God, and the book of Isaiah is quoted here by our Savior. God is the divine initiator of the sending of the Son and of the provoking of the human fallen heart and mind to think of Him. Kind of makes sense when we think of 1 John 4 later written. We love Him because He what? He first loved us. And aren't you so glad? Aren't you so glad? for the tutoring of your creator. God took each one of you to school. He brought you to class. And he explained himself. Jesus is the narration of God in human flesh. He brought us to his classroom and he put before us the narration of himself to learn of him. you might be saved we conclude with a compelling invitation again there's a few words here that would describe for us that this is compelling you can write these words down we'll briefly explain them you'll notice these words uh, throughout the reading of the bread of life discourse come come behold Believe, eat, drink. Come behold, believe, eat, and drink. Those of you that have been born again, you've answered this compelling invitation in these ways. And God's grace granted you the ability to do so. Whosoever will, Jesus says, must what? Must come. You've got to intentionally approach Jesus if you are without him. When God teaches your heart and draws you, you need to come quickly. No less than five times in 10 verses, in verses 35 to 45 in this chapter, Jesus employs the word come to emphasize the need for action on your part. And you need to come and just one time, verse 40, the word behold is used. As you come, you must behold. This was a word used to explain the attention given by a sports fan to their favorite athlete or team 
at a sporting event or of a student's attention to their favorite subject in school or to a traveler's attention and, and investigation of the beauty of the earth as they traveled. You must examine with passion, with joy. You must behold him. Come and look for a long time. And as you come, you must believe. We note in our introduction that this gospel contains more mention of the word believe than any other New Testament book. And it's even in its, John's purpose for writing that we've already noted many times. No less than six times in this discourse, we're encouraged to completely entrust our hearts to Jesus alone in believing. And to clarify what believing means, he says you need to eat and I invite you to drink. Jesus used the analogy of eating his flesh to imply the sufficiency and necessity of his bodily sacrifice for sin. He is the lamb that physically needed to be sacrificed for the sin of mankind. He uses the analogy of drinking his blood to demonstrate the violent means of his death on the cross. Without the shedding of his blood, there would be no remission for sin. He is the lamb that has come to take away the sin of the world. Eating and drinking imply final appropriation of him by the individual who has come and beheld and believed that he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For thousands, it still wasn't enough. Hard for us to wrap our minds and hearts around that one, isn't it? Read this passage hundreds of times in my life, and every time I leave it uh, in, a, in a gloriously agonizing way, God, you taught my heart to believe. I don't get why most don't. That's a mystery I'll leave to heaven. But there were some who did. And it was Peter, it was read by our choir director earlier, who knew that he had been taught of God. Matthew 16 teaches us the same thing when Jesus looked at Peter. And Peter exclaims again, yes, we know who you are. And Jesus says what? It wasn't man who compelled you to believe, but it, you were taught of God to believe. And we have nowhere else to go. So we will not leave. And so many preachers throughout history have found one particular statement here in the conclusion of Jesus' time in the synagogue. Now think about this. There's 13 bodies left in the temple. It's been emptied. They've all left because it's too hard for them to know and believe. It's Jesus and his 12 followers. And yet he does what? 
there's still one among you who's a devil. So among the faithful here today, there was 12 then. More than 12 today. Is there one here that still needs to believe? Come, behold, believe, eat, drink. If Jesus hasn't changed the way you think, act, speak, live, then you need to come, behold, believe, eat and drink knowing the content of the gospel will never be enough for all of eternity you must come behold believe eat and drink all of him governs all of who you are in the way you think and the way you speak and the way you live if you don't have the life of Jesus living through you you don't know Jesus. So come. Behold. Believe. Eat and drink. And I say that to just maybe one today. Don't have Jesus until you're living his life. Let's pray together. Only God is the judge of a soul. But my friends, mark my words, he is the judge of your soul. And this morning you're seated before him as condemned sinner or as righteous child. There's no middle ground. You are in unbelief or you believe. But again, Jesus demonstrates his mercy to you. Whether watching by live stream or seated in the auditorium, he's demonstrating his mercy to you again. What did you come looking to hear or looking to see this morning? That discluded Jesus Worship, my friends, is not a goods and services exercise of human tradition. We worship one who is creator and one who is savior. Do you recognize Jesus as both? Have you been born again? Has your life been changed by him? And if not, just come and behold you've heard enough now believe appropriate him to your heart by faith entrust yourself to him and him alone by faith turn from your sin beg for forgiveness 
Throw yourself upon him, under him, around him, and be saved. The world has no problem interfacing with you incessantly throughout the week about who they are, who the heroes are, what their means of existence are. I have no problem presenting to you Jesus Christ and Him alone who is from heaven, who is bred from God to you alone for your spiritual soul satisfaction. You must believe. Please do so today with your eyes wide open. Some of you are still looking. That's fine. With your eyes wide open, believe now. Please come to him. And I'm hanging out afterwards. If you'd like to understand more. You don't have to talk to me. You can talk with someone you know here, you've come with here. They can help you. But you don't need them. You just need to come to grips with who Jesus is and why he's come. Okay? Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for your patience with us, your mercy to us. We just learned to... We, we seek to learn from the mercy of, of Jesus in this, own, in this sermon. My goodness, Lord, he's so gracious and, and so kind and, and so patient and yet crystal clear, simply, nobly clear. I pray that we would exude those same virtues and speak that same message of him. And I pray all who are here would be born again. In Jesus' name, amen.